Have your Bibles. Let's turn to the book of Proverbs. And, uh, you know, last time uh, we looked at, uh, and have been for a couple of weeks, our, our spiritual warfare, you know, as, as a believer. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. And, and we've talked and seen different examples in the book of Proverbs of, of that warfare and how to wage that warfare. And, you know, my goal last week was to show you how God wants to develop uh, and make you uh, into his fine instrument of war uh, in this spiritual battle that we're in. You being uh, able to be used of God to, to do what God uh, would have us to do. And, you know, we teach you the Bible here for many reasons. It solves a lot of issues in your life, obviously keeps you from getting into the world and things like that. But I think the main goal that we have here, at least in my mind anyhow, is to take all of you young men, all of you young ladies, all of you moms and dads, all of you people who uh, call yourself part of this work uh, to transform you into a formidable weapon in God's hand and being for God being able to use you. And we saw you know, the illustration last week and an example that actually I don't think most people would ever stop and think about, but we talked about how that he said that the uh, sling in a hand uh, of somebody, and I showed you how that in the battle God used the, in a devastating way slingers, men who could sling stones and hit a rabbit running, uh, you know, as an incredible uh, picture of what God wants to do uh, with you and me as the opposition. You and I being that sling, and of course the stones being the Word of God, the principles, the concepts, the, the verses, the chapters that we give to others and send out uh, from our own lives. And then we looked at, you know, I just want to touch on this, we looked at how twice he used the concept of, of a parable or the parables. And uh, we all know here what the parables really represent. We've been through it many, many times. But I thought it was interesting because if there's one thing, and again, I'm not saying you've got to be able to understand the inward workings of all the parables to be able to be used to God. I'm certainly not saying that. But I am saying this. If you do know the inside workings of the parables, you definitely know your Bible. Uh, It's one of those things that God has just in a miraculous way, fit together that is hard to uh, explain. But boy, when you get into all the intricate pieces of them and you see how that they all dovetail together, yet how that they all go outward and cover so many different aspects uh, within, within the Word of God. And we have seen now, as we've come through here and looked at all this, two different aspects of your life and, and my life. The first one we focused on was our legs and how that represents where we go for God. And the Bible talks about them being strong, being fixed, being unmovable. In the Song of Solomon, it's like marble. That, and marble is the stone that they choose for tombstones because it endures forever and ever and ever. And uh, a hardness like that. Ready to move out to wherever God, once you get saved, ready to move out to wherever God wants to take you. And God has places that he wants you to go, things that he wants you to do. You may base your whole life in Kansas City, and stay here and live here. But within that scope, God's going to take you places. God's going to take you to Wichita. He's going to take you to Lincoln. He's going to take you to uh, all the places that God um, wants us to go to impact somebody's life. 
And so it's a thing where you have to be ready. You, you have to have your legs firmly set and, and know what God wants you to do before God is going to take you where he wants you to go. The second one was our hands. And uh, we talked about in Psalms how he, he's made our hands, our fingers, uh, ready for war. And the hands will represent the work of God uh, by the fruit of our hands. And the Bible says in Proverbs 31, 16, and we looked at this last week, uh, with your hands you, you plant a vineyard. And that's a picture of the people that you uh, invest your life with. Uh, you know, I, there's a lot of guys out there that uh, uh, claim to know the Bible. You see them all the time talking about the Bible. And, 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 and I, never look at, I never look at what a man says he believes about the Bible. Uh, uh, you can get on the Internet and there's a thousand guys out there, you know. That'll, what I look at, because the real key is not what you know about the Bible or how well you think you can exposit the Bible. The real key is looking at a person's life and seeing the trail of people they have invested in. That's the key. Most of you here have a legacy of people. There's people in this church today loving God, raising their families right, doing the right thing simply because you uh, let God, by the work of your hands, you planted a vineyard. I'm not interested in your intellect. I'm not interested in what you know or how much you think you know. I want to see where the rubber meets the road. I want to see the lives that you have invested in and are now investing in. And we do it in, in, in so many different ways. You know, we do it through the discipleship. When a couple wants to get married here, we do it through marriage, uh, uh, going through and understanding the concepts of marriage, our marriage enrichment classes or premarital counseling as sometimes it's called. We do it in people that come in with issues in their life. You bring scores and scores of people here who are struggling and I get a chance to talk with them. But if, if it wasn't for you, I would never get the opportunity. And it's because together what we have decided that we're going to do is what the Bible says we should be doing. We're not just a bunch of intellects here. We don't sit around and discuss the deeper things of the Bible. We do, but we always have an end result to it. It's not about sitting around and talking about this or talking about that or having discussions about the Bible. It's about talking about the Bible, studying the Bible. But the real key is, did it change your life? Amen. Are you taking what you know and giving it to somebody else? That, to me, that's always been the bottom line. I'm not interested in the, in, in the semantics of, of Christianity. Uh, I'm interested in when the rubber hits the road, what are you doing with your hands? What vineyard are you planting and where are you planting it? Building people through the ministry with the message of God in your hand. And we talked about how, how wrong it is or how bad it will be to send a fool out with the message of God in their hand. Because they'll just cause damage and they'll do more harm than they will good. And, you know, and along with that, I think the greatest thing, for me anyhow, that came out of last week was Psalms 90 verse 17. That when, we, when God takes you and uses you and God puts his hand upon you and takes your hands to plant a vineyard and teach others, the Bible says by doing that, we establish the beauty of the Lord. People see who God really is. It's not some, as the Bible says, 
foolish genealogies or, or old wives' tales where you just circumvent everything and just, it's about the real reality of Christianity. Your life, your hands touching the life of somebody else. Back in the Old Testament, there's a story back there that, that I have a message on that I preached, and it, it's a, it, to me, it's one of the most powerful messages found in the Bible. It's about the prophet of God who, uh, this woman has a son who dies. And this son dies, and they call for Elijah to come and, 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 to, and to do something. And, of course, it's a great story, and there's so many practical applications. But for the sake of time, when he finally shows up, the Bible says that here is this boy laying dead. And the Bible clearly says that he stretches himself on that dead body. And it says that he puts his eyes to his eyes, to his mouth to his mouth, and his hands to his hands. And the Bible says that when he did that, life came into this boy and he came back to life. Now, I got to admit to you that that seems like a strange way, and I'm sure glad that we're not doing that in the ministry today. (laughs) But the picture is, is an incredible picture because this boy that was dead represents unsaved people who are dead in trespasses of sin. And when Elijah went in and he, he stretched himself upon that, that child, he put it, the Bible says he put his eyes to his eyes and his mouth to his mouth and his hands to his hands. And when he did that, the kid come alive. I walked away from that seeing what a great picture that is about you and me dealing with people. Because the first thing it says that eye to eye and For you and I to be effective in dealing with people, we have to understand why unsaved people see things the way that they see them. Too many times as God's people, especially as Baptists, we are so so uptight um, with unsaved people. And we don't spend the time to understand. We, we just demand them to cross over the line to become saved. And, And that is never, never, never not the way to handle it. So Elijah, when he put his eyes to his eyes, it represents you and I seeing through the eyes of an unsaved man and understanding how he sees things. And when you do that, you will better know and understand how to bring the gospel to him. Second thing he says, mouth to mouth. Not only do we need to see how an unsaved man sees things in life, But mouth-to-mouth represents that we understand why he says the things that he says. Here again, we get so so caught up in uh, the language that people say and the things that... And many times we forget that when we were lost and without Christ, we said the exact same things. But now we're sanctified. Now we're simotified. Now we're, you know, we're, 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 we're above all of that. So when we see an unsaved man or woman, we get indignant because we think, how, how oh, my, my, vir-. there's nothing virgin about your ears. <laughs> we need to understand not only why they see things the way they see it, but we need to understand why they say the things that they say, and then it hands to hand. And I thought long, you know, not only do I need to see and understand how they look at things and why they say the things that they say, but the hands represent the things that they do. There's a great value in dealing with people 
by understanding why unsaved people, and even God's people, look at things the way they look at, talk and say the things that they say, and then their hands, the things that they do. And there's a great value in understanding all of that. Now, I, I realize the reason why so many pastors and so many Christians, they, they want to get into that fluffy, flowery world where you just talk about the Bible and have a nice time with the Bible is because it takes a real dedicated work. It takes men and women who have to come down off that ivory dream world that they live in and get down in the trenches where people are at and actually put your eyes to their eyes, your mouth to their mouth, and your hands to their hands. And God says that your hands are key. And God wants you, once you're saved, God wants you to, with the work of your hands, to plant a vineyard. This church is our vineyard. And we're full, this is why in the Bible, men are likened to trees. Trees have limbs. We want to study your lineage or your heritage. You look back at your family tree. Men in the Bible are likened to trees. One guy, guy was blind and God healed him and God said, what do you see? And Jesus said, what do you see? And he says, I see men walking around like trees. That's a great key in the Bible. And we all should be fruit-bearing trees. Seed within ourselves. And by your hands. God has already put you here. With the fruit of your hands, we, you and me together, we plant a vineyard, one person at a time. Everybody in this church came in one at a time. And you stayed here because somebody saw you, cared about you, and then invested in you. Building people through the ministry with the message of God in your hand. And, you know, it's this work of God, as this, as, as this work of God uh, begins in you, and we talked about this last week. I gave you, I think, one of the great verses in the Bible for all of us in Philippians 1, 6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you and perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. The day you got saved, whether you recognize it today or not, and you may be one of the ones that we've talked about here on Sunday that you don't feel like you need to come to church and you study your Bible and you do all this and you that and you study the great truths of the scriptures and dialogue about it. That's great. Wonderful. Congratulations. The day you got saved, God began a work in you. And that work isn't a work about your intellect. It isn't a work about your mediations in your conversation. It's a work about you taking your hands your eyes and your mouth and putting them up to unsaved people. That's the key. And God began that work in you and it starts from salvation up to the rapture. And uh, God's concept for that is, as we already know, the New Testament local church. Now today I want to I wanna pick it up in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 10. And we're just going to talk about one verse today, but I think it's a verse that is that is worthy of, of our time to set it aside. And it simply says this, The great God that formed all things both rewardeth the fool and rewardeth the transgressor. You stand up and ask God's blessing on the thing to one morning? You betcha you can. God bless you.
Thank you, Jordan. Next time you borrow my jacket, wash it before you bring it back, okay? <laughs> Verse 10 says, The great God that formed all things. And yes, by the way, if, if you ever go someplace and it's cold and you forget your jacket, I always have three or four. I've got two daughters that never dressed right. <laughs> three granddaughters that completely don't dress right. And they're coming to me all the time. Grandpa, can you have a jacket? Grandpa, do you have a jacket? I have jackets. And uh, I, I've thought many times about putting a sign on my truck to rent jackets here, you know. And, but anyway, so I'm always got you, always got you covered. <laughs> the great God. The great God that formed all things both rewardeth the fool and rewarded the transgressor. Now, now for sure, this verse will fit right into what we have been studying uh, so far in, in chapter 26. We have been studying, and this has been a chapter that's been pretty much dedicated to a fool and foolish things. And we have been looking at the workings of the fool, how to identify him, how to deal with him, uh, how he thinks, but most importantly, asking ourselves, are we are him? <laughs> And it, this verse deals with something that most of God's people never think about. I don't even think they think it's workable or possible. But this verse deals with the reward or the payday for sinners and fools. You know, years ago, <clears throat> I was privileged to hear this sermon probably three times in person. There was an old Southern evangelist by the name of R.G. Lee. You can still find this message that I'm about to tell you about and other ones on, the, on YouTube. You just got to, they're there. And he had a message that he was famous for and he preached it all over the country. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, it was, and he preached, every sermon he preached was a great sermon. But there's certain sermons that become a hallmark for you. And this one for him. And O.R.G. Lee, he's dead now, went home to be with the Lord probably 35, 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, he was a great old Southern evangelist, and he had a message that he preached called Payday Someday. And it, it, it was an incredible message. And, uh, you know, most people today think that when it comes to sin, uh, that there is no payday. That when you talk about God rewarding a sinner, we always think of a reward as a, as a good thing. And it's hard for us to think about a payday for a fool or a transgressor or a, a reward connected to it. We, we tell our kids, I, I see it on billboards, crime doesn't pay. What an injustice that is to our kids. Sure it does. Preachers preach that sin doesn't pay. There's no profit in it. Why, you moron, certainly there is a profit to it. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Certainly there's a reward and a payday coming for it. There's a wage paid for sin and, and a payday coming, and, a, and there's a reward to the fool and the transgressor. Why, Psalms 54, 5 says, He, that rewarded, he shall reward evil unto mine enemies. And cut them off from thy truth. There's a reward for evil men. Psalm 70 verse 3 talks about the reward of somebody's shame. 
In Psalms 109, verses 1 through 20, uh, uh, yeah, we'll not read the whole thing, but in that chat passage, he, he lays out 13 things that befall a fool and a transgressor. And in verse 20, he says that these 20 things shall be their reward. They're rewarded with it. In the book of Obadiah, uh, verse 15, there's only one chapter, uh, he says that the second coming of Christ will be for the evil, their reward. So we find in the Bible, a wise man and a fool will both get rewarded for a life without God or the child of God who will get rewarded for a life with God. You know, in the Bible, a reward is defined as something good, given good or bad in relationship to a man's lifestyle and what and where he goes in his life, his work, his labor. This reward, good or bad, will be based always in the Bible on the fruit, good or bad, of that man's labor. You'll find in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, when it's talking about the nation of Israel. <clears throat> we know the nation of Israel was God's people. <clears throat> then they went bad. And we know that, that he says in Jeremiah chapter 21 verse 8 that, that they're bearing evil figs. But there's also some good figs that they bore. You know, as I looked at that, I thought to myself, boy, here's a good question for somebody that wants to do the Bible. In, in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, and other places, it said that Israel bore bad figs. And they could have bore good figs, but it says they bearing bad figs. Now, over there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, uh, 21, verse 19, when Jesus comes out and sees the fig tree, which is a picture of the nation of Israel, the Bible says that it's barren and it has no fruit. Now, here's the question. You want to get into your Bible? Why in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah's time, could they bear bad figs, but when Jesus showed up, it's barren and there's no figs? There's a reason behind that. Think about that for about 30, 40 years. Now, in this life, I'm not going to tell you the answer. I just want to throw that out to you. Now, in this life, we see it all the time. If you work with me with people on the slowest form, certainly even in discipleship, and you've all mostly discipled people, and you see this. Now, you get people that come in and get discipled, and they're just they're dream boats. I mean, they just glide right through. No real issues, no real problems. They're just like sponges. They get everything <clears throat> that you have for them. And then you have others who obviously, it's okay. They have struggles. They have issues, things you got to work through. That's the whole point of it. You know, years ago when I started discipleship, and this is back in the 80s, when I started discipleship, my goal, I had no idea the scope that it would expand itself to. My goal now is to, is to, I mean, back then was just to take people that I had and really teach them about the Bible. Now we use it in a, many different ways. Uh, you find people that you begin to disciple that they come in under iffy circumstances that you're not sure they're even saved. Now, the average Baptist church would stop discipleship till you hammered until they got saved. We found out that if you just stick with the lessons, you'll find out God will reveal if they're saved or not. You, you ladies, I don't know, I'm sure the guys do this too, but the guys aren't as smart as the women are in this church, so they probably don't. I don't know how many times somebody's told me that you, you, you group of you ladies started to disciple somebody. 
and you weren't sure where they were at because they weren't somebody that was locked. They came in and I, you got them or I got them or whatever. And so you're not sure where they're at. So instead of just trying to take your doctor probe and probe their heart and see if they're saved or not, your first discipleship lesson, which is about salvation, you know what you guys do? Maybe you have three ladies, four ladies, five ladies, I don't know. But what you do is you just take turns that first time around and tell the testimony of how you got saved. I don't know how many times you've told me that after you've done that, the lady or the person has said, well, I don't think I've ever done that. You didn't say one thing about what they needed to do. And yet you said everything that they needed to do. But you didn't say it directly to them. You didn't tell them what God will do for them. You were telling them what God had done for you. And nothing will impact somebody's world more than actually seeing what God did in your world. I mean, we can tell people all day long how great God is and how the Bible is and now salvation. We can do that. But nothing will impact it other than the change that they see in your life and then you taking your hand with the message that God gave you and giving it to them. But we, we've seen it. Well, we've seen it. We, we've seen and we all have dealt with it. I guess there's no place where the concept of long-term versus short-term gets displayed more in, in situations like this when you look at the, uh, the fruit of a man's hands or a woman's hands and their labor uh, when it comes to what they've done or not done with the Word of God. And we see and experience in dealing with people the reward that comes to a fool and the reward that comes to some man who's transgressed. Now, I'll say that, I'll say this. You can change your life anytime you want to. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, well, I'm the fool that he's talking about, you don't have to stay there. If you say, well, yeah, he's the transgressor and the person I'm, you don't have to stay there. I preached one time at John 8, 44 in the church where it says, you have your father the devil and the lust of your father you shall do. And I told everybody in the church service, you know, that our spiritual name is devil before we got saved. And that your mama's name was devil and your father's name was devil and you're, you were of your father the devil. And an old, dear old sweet saint came up to me at the end and she was upset that I said that. And she says, you know what? She says, I was really offended that you said that I was, I was of the devil's family. And I said, ma'am, I totally understand that. I said, I heard that about 20 years ago and I was upset. So you know what I did? I changed families. You don't have to stay where you're at today. Now, you may do that, but you don't have to. If this church is proof of anything, it's proof that the Bible we believe, the way we believe it, works in people's lives. And you can't deny that. And it's a thing where it'll change. You can change about you whatever you want to change. Now, I know we're a wild, crazy bunch. Got a Top Gun hero in here and got a, you know, and got, we're weird guys here. But that's okay. God's weird. Israel was weird. He would call them a peculiar nation. And we're a peculiar church. That's okay. I like that. In fact, I'm thinking about commuting back and forth and moving to peculiar Missouri just to fit in with everything that goes on. But we've seen the rewards, haven't we? We've seen the rewards that come in a person's life because of bad judgment. You relied on the world system. You didn't care much about God. You, you, you grasped everything you could off of life. You know, I've looked at people and watched how they've learned and how they've taken stuff in from the world. 
and how it's really affected their life. And I thought to myself many, many times, if that person, that same person would do the same thing with the things of God and the Word of God, their life would be incredible. But you'll wind up with uh, the reward of bad judgment. You have no discernment. You have no baseline of truth. And bad judgment will always bring another reward with it, and that is wrong choices. Because when you have the reward of bad judgment, you're going to ultimately get the reward of bad choices. You're going to make choices that are not the best choices in life. And those wrong choices will lead to many other issues in your life. But let's just stay on a little little thing here. Uh, wrong choices will, will ultimately lead, in most cases, to wrong relationships. Either somebody you marry or some friend you hang out with, but it leads to wrong relationships. And, you know, when you... You, uh, when you get into the wrong relationship, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to a, a wrecked marriage. And these are rewards that come along with, with violating the Word of God. <clears throat> when you have a wrecked marriage, it's going to lead to rebellious children. All of it's going to lead to the reward of a wasted time in life. And many times it leads to a, a loss of health and all kinds of problems, monetarily and, and socially and, and spiritually. You know, if I've learned one thing in life that I'm absolutely sure of outside of my King James Bible, I've learned that in life we pretty much get what we deserve. In fact, let me quantify that for a moment. When you and I do wrong, we all, I never feel sorry about myself or anybody else. I mean, I try to help them, but at the end of the day, I don't really feel sorry for them because that was my choice or your choice. But when we do wrong, we get what we deserve. When your parents, when you were growing up and your parents had a strict zero tolerance policy of what you knew you were going to get whipping for and you've crossed over the line and you know it was whipping day. <laughs> deep down inside, on the outside, you didn't want the whipping, but you can't tell me deep down inside is crying as you were and begging for your life as you were. You didn't know based on what you've been told, you deserved a whipping. So I have learned when I don't do right, when you don't do right, we get what we deserve. But I've also learned this. When we do do what God says and we do do what's right, then we get what we don't deserve. We get the mercy and the grace of God. That's a tremendous concept. But when we decide that we're going to walk away from God or we're not going to do what's right, you know, and we reject truth, then we're, we're going to get what we're going to get what's coming to us. Hey, I've seen many, many, many a person over my ministry get mad at the preacher about something and think that oh, this church down over here, or over here is going to be a lot better. Oh, I'm going there, and I'm going to do this, and they get mad over here for something stupid, and they burn their bridges and go over here, and then two or three years later, they're sitting there with no ministry, no Bible being taught to them. Uh, the church now that doesn't even believe the King James Bible anymore, and they're saying, man, boy, did I, did I, did, I, I just didn't, that was a bad, bad move on my part. Here I am now. Now what do I do? 
And my answer to that is, you got what you deserve. You had it. You had everything that you could want. I knew a pastor one time, he had a good church where he taught the Bible and he had people get upset with him and leave and then they went to some other church and they thought that they were going to be, you know, in the hierarchy over there and, and uh, they didn't go anywhere and they just, they just absolutely, absolutely were miserable. But they were stuck. They were stuck. And there's people that say, well, I feel sorry. Not me. You got what you deserve. Hey, when God gives you the best and then you sell it out for something else because you're stupid, you deserve whatever you get. And I'm speaking to myself. When you reject the principles and you do your own thing and then, you know, it's like O'Mel used to say, we like to sow our wild oats and then pray for crop failure. You know, the value of a long life, and you the kids don't see this. The older you get, if you stay in the book, and you young kids, this is why so many of you young guys and young gals, you make mistakes when it comes to the Bible and ministry and things, and you get caught up in goofy stuff. That's because you haven't lived long enough to be able to define what's really goofy and what really isn't. You have a short span of, 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 of a test tube of being able to test things. But you know, you live in a work for 50, 60, 70 years, you step back and you see life and you see it now where you saw some things that everybody thought was good short term, but long term, they turned into a disaster. Now that lends wisdom to what you do know and you understand. When you couple that with the Bible, you begin to see how that, you know what, you look at things through the, the expanse of 30, 40 years of looking at life. If you're paying attention, you'll learn some things. I've always thought pastors, for the most part, are the most stupidest, dumbest, worthless people on the planet. The ones that I know of. And I'll tell you why. They start a church when they're maybe in their 20s and their 30s. They do a work, they build it, or they don't, or whatever, but they go through all of this time. They'll spend 20, 30 years in the ministry. And then when they hit 65... Right at the age that they now should have amassed all of this knowledge and wisdom based on the Bible. And they're probably more valuable now to you young guys and gals than they ever were in any time of their ministry. They all quit. They all go to Florida to the preacher dinosaur graveyard. They give it up because of the fact that they thought they have done all that they can do. Let me tell you something. When it comes to the ministry and being a pastor, there's no discharge from this war. You don't have an expiration date unless God punches your ticket. You don't get to be 65 or 70 when now it's Social Security time and you look back and you say, well, I served the Lord for 20, 30 years. Hey, that 30, 20 was just a school for you. When you hit 60, 65, or 70, you should be amassing everything you've learned in light of the Word of God. You're a thousand times more valuable to you young kids, you young couples who have never experienced all of that. Now, I get it. Even at that, you're going to have some who are unteachable. They're going to do, they're hard-headed. They're going to do what they want to do no matter what. I get that, but I'm saying, the long-term of things, the longer you live, if you stay in the book, the more you're going to understand about the wisdom things of life and the foolish things of life. Right now, you can't. Some of you, 
are ahead of the game just because you're so into the book. But I'm just telling you, if I've learned anything, I've learned that in life, when we go away from God and the Word of God, we turn our back on the principles of the book to do what we want to do. We get what we deserve. I've seen many young men that walked out of here saying, I'm going to start a church and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And all down through my ministry, I've seen it. You know where they're at today? Nowhere. Nowhere. You know why? It takes more than just a want to to start a church. And it's a thing where that's just the way it works. Somebody said, what do you think about that? Here's a guy that, you know, uh, think of a guy with you for 20, 30 years, you know, and then he bails out and goes and does his own thing, and then it fails, it flops, and makes an absolute disaster out of everything. He's lost his family, he does his this and that, and he's relegated and now, and he's lost every chance that God will work. What do you think about that, Bob? I think he got exactly what he deserved. He had the greatest chance, as many of them have. And you know what? I've learned, I believe it. I believe you, we get what we deserve. And when we do what's right and stay with the book, bless God, we get what we don't deserve. You realize we all ought to be in hell this morning? Amen. What are you doing sitting here being saved? Amen. What am I doing here being saved this morning? Well, you all desire, we all desire to be screaming, rolling around a lake of fire this morning. Amen. Bumping into each other and saying, man, it's hot down here. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because at least when it came to salvation, you did what's right. You know what happened? You got what you didn't deserve. Now, if you can just capture that like a flittering little, little butterfly, grab it and keep it, you'll find that the day you got saved and did what was right, you just started getting what you didn't deserve. And if you can stay in the book, and watch that book and love that book, believe that book, and do with your hands and your feet what God wants you to do, God will continually give you a life of things you don't deserve. Amen. And when we walk away from it, I never feel sorry for myself any more than I feel for you. We get exactly what we deserve and we don't do what we should do. The value of a long life and understanding everything that puts around it. You know, I've learned it in life as in anything. There are no experts. The concept of Bible scholars is, a, is an absolute joke to me. A Bible scholar is nothing more than a second and third century Gnostic, someone that claims to be an expert when it comes to the Greek or the Hebrew or uh, using it in determining the Bible, and they're set up on a pedestal someplace as an expert. Let me tell you something. Not only true of the Bible, but it's certainly true of life. There are no experts in anything. When it comes to life, when it comes, certainly when it comes to the Bible, all there are are students who are on a different levels that are continuing to learn. There are no experts. Now, there's a great lesson here for all of us. At the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible tells us, which is the definitive chapters is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. It says in 1 Corinthians 5.10 that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, it says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. And the key verse to all of this will be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, Every man shall receive, here it comes, Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And he says on the foundation, your salvation, you're going to build Gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or stubble. I'll tell you something, 
there's a reward that comes with either category. So our reward, good or bad, will be based on two areas that we have been looking at in chapter 26. Where we go with the message of God in our, in our life journey, our legs, Proverbs 26, 6. And what we build with the labor of our hands, Proverbs 26, 9. And we will either build, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 30, that when we are to be a wise master builder. Because whether it's good or whether it's bad, it comes with a reward. You know, one of the greatest principles in the Word of God on this is, is what Paul told Timothy as he was preparing him for the work of God uh, that God had for him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, it says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Verse 20, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth and of some of honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel under honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good's work. Now, I, I want to, if you don't have this broken down in your Bible, you need to do this. I'll walk you through this incredible passage. First of all, verse 19, he says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. That's your salvation. And your salvation is birthed on the perfect book, the word of God that God has given you. I'll just say it for the record. If your Bible is not 100% perfect, neither is your salvation. Amen. It's just that simple. We like to pretend that our salvation can be sure and perfect, but the Bible maybe isn't. You're out of your mind. Your salvation, being born again, is based on the seed of God's Word. If there's any error in it, then there's a good chance there's error in your salvation. Now, that's not very theological. It's just simple, basic, but it's, most of the Bible is that way. So the foundation of God will be your salvation based on the Word of God. And he says, nevertheless, the foundation of God is sure. Now, there is a direct reference, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, to God's sure word of prophecy. There's the good work of God of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It's built on a sure foundation because your sure salvation is built on a sure book. Now then he says, having this seal, that'll be the Holy Spirit of God in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and Ephesians 4, 30, you being sealed with the Holy Spirit of God of promise under the day of redemption. So there's the seal. Then he says in verse 20, in a great house, now, this house here is defined for us in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15, as the household of God. We know from our in-depth Bible studies that this represents the uh, members of this family uh, run from Genesis to Revelation. And there's seven members of this family spanning that course of the Bible. We've talked about it many, many times. And he's saying that in God's house, which has a plan for you and a work, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you're going to find vessels of honor. And those vessels of honor will be gold and silver. Gold in the Bible will always represent the deity of Christ. Silver in the Bible will always represent the redemption of Christ dying for you. So a vessel of honor is someone who puts the emphasis on Christ and what he did for him. 
Now, over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he adds one more thing to this where he says gold, silver, and precious stones. And we know the precious stones are people. Here he doesn't put the people because he's talking about our honor as a vessel for God. But it's only understandable that once you get the God in your life and you understand what he did for your life, the precious stones are going to show up because you're going to take the message with your hands and tell somebody else about it. Then he says the vessels of dishonor. And he says wood. In Isaiah chapter 37, verse 19, and other places uh, in the Old Testament, wood is always used in the description of, of graven images, carved out of wood, sometimes stone. So it's a picture of a vessel of this honor. You have your own gods that you're connecting your life to. You're having your man-made images of wood. Then he says, earth. Earth in the Bible is where man came from in the early books, chapters of Genesis. Bible says that Adam came down to the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. If you pick up a handful of dirt, you'll find the four, same 14 components in that dirt that you find in our human bodies because he came from the dirt. So vessels of this honor are connected with their own self, their own flesh, and the graven images of wood that they have replaced God with. And he says in verse 21 that you and I, as a vessel of honor, are to purge ourselves from these. Now, now here's what I want you to get. What I just gave you was great and wonderful, and you need to get that in your Bible. But here's what he says. Verse 21. And we are to be a vessel of honor. There's three things in verse 21 that we have to have. The first one is sanctified. We have to be set apart from the world. He said in our passage here, purge yourself from these. If you're going to be a vessel of honor, you have no place but having the world being part of your life. You can't have a Bible in one hand and a, and a beer in the other. You can't have a Bible in one hand and the things of the world in the other. You have to be set apart. And then the second thing he says, which I find very, very instructive, is meat for the master's use. Now, he could have said that any way he wanted to. He chose to use the word that is found back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. When God brought the woman to Adam, and he said to Adam in verse 20 of chapter 2, she's going to be a help meet to you. Now, I've always made the reference to people that when he brought her to Adam, he didn't say this is a help mate for you. He said this is a help meet for you. That's because that Adam had a commission from God and Eve had to be part of that commission to fill that commission and to fulfill it. So he called her a help meet to Adam because she was to help Adam meet the commission that God had given to Adam. And there's no way God could have, uh, Adam could have done that without her help. So she's a help meet. Now, 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 here I look at this and I go back to Genesis and I see Adam as a type of Christ. I see Eve as a type of the church. And now I have a picture of the relationship that I should have and you should have with Christ in the picture of Adam as a type of Christ, Eve as a type of the church. Now we begin to see the first time the devil shows up in the Bible. And when the devil shows up in the Bible, 
he picks a time when Adam is not around. Which is a picture of the church age when Christ is back up in heaven and the weaker vessel, the Eve, is there by herself and all she has at that moment in time is what God had told her that he was going to do and told her what she was not to do. Now, the devil shows up. Pick the weakest time. Picture the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Picture the church. He beguiles Eve. Pictures the church. He shows up, and the first words out of his mouth is exactly the first words out of his mouth to every one of you who he wants to beguile. He says to Eve, a type of the church, exactly what your pastor says, exactly what your Bible scholar says, exactly what everybody's telling you today. He starts out, da 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 yea, hath God said. So he's got credibility, and then he simply changed what God said, because that wasn't what God said. And when he changed what God said, the weaker vessel, the type of the church, ceased to be Adam's helpmeet. Now she took of the forbidden fruit and something changed about her and she's in a fallen state married to a guy who's still in his heavenly state. So he did exactly what Christ did for me. He died for her. And I'm going to tell you right now, that is the most beautiful picture in all of the Bible of what God wants you to do for him. That's why he says it here. When you got saved, he began a good work in you, and he's going to perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. But the only way he can perform it is for you to be his helpmeet. Where Eve was to help meet the great commission that God gave to Adam, you and I are to be God's helpmeet to Christ that we fulfill his commission from God the Father. And the exact same thing happens to us. Yea, hath God said, and then a better reading should be. The NIV is a better Bible. The Greek and the Hebrew will really help you. Well, I believe the King James Bible is the best translation, but there's other translations out there. Yea, hath God said, society. I don't go two chapters in my Bible before I know who Christ is a picture of, what I'm a picture of, what the devil's going to try to do to stop me from being a helpmeet, and so many of God's people just blow right through that or see it and refuse to follow it and believe it for whatever their own personal agenda is and wind up ending to be God's helpmeet. God has something he wants you to do. When he began that good work in you, it was to be his helpmeet, that he could send you wherever he wanted you to go, with the message of God, and you take your hands, and by the fruit of your hands, you plant a vineyard. Oh, I'm telling you. It's just the way it works. And then he says the third thing, prepared for every good work. God wants you to get prepared. God wants you to get prepared, and the only way you can get prepared is through a New Testament Bible-believable local church. A Bible college can't do it for you. Most churches can't do it for you. It has to be a church that is standing on the truth of God that when push comes to shove, that's all you got left. All you have is the book and nobody will ever talk you out of it. And if that book isn't 100% perfect without any errors in it, as far as God is concerned, you ain't going anywhere. I've always watched all my ministry 
the mindset of young men, not too much young ladies, but young men who, who get the, the zeal and the passion to do something for God, but they want to do it outside the local church. They'll, and the reason why they do, and I've seen it all my life. I mean, it just, it, it just, it just happens. You get a 500 people together, you're going to have two or three guys like that. In a course of 40, 50 years, you're going to see 20 or 30 guys like that. I got a list of them in my Bible. You could never teach them anything. They never bought into the local church system, and every one of them, at some point in their life, got outside the local church, started their own ministry, and did their own thing without ever, ever, ever being under the accountability of a New Testament local church. And the reason for that is simply this. All their life, the one thing that none of them wanted was accountability. I had a guy in my ministry that when I was way back in the day, and uh, nobody here really knows him, I don't think. You might know his name, but, but he was the most worthless kid, you know, rebellious against everything. And, uh, you know, and he fell into the mindset of the King James Bible. Uh, that Ruckman mindset sometimes kind of grabbed guys like that, that they want to be like him without ever understanding what he is. And so he, this guy was an absolute idiot. And uh, he left church. He went all over the place. He got booted out of just about every church. Could never find a church that satisfied him. He's the most goofed up, screwed up, weirdo guy you ever met in your life. And he's a pastor now. And you know how he's a pastor? Because when he couldn't find any other church, what he did was what they all do. He went and started his own. And now he has his own church. With, he's been there probably 20, 30 years. He's got the same 12 people. It never grows. It isn't going anywhere. I mean, they are, the, they are the goofiest people on the planet. I mean, they, I could get into some of the stuff that they teach, and they say, you will blow your minds. And it's a thing where they have standards, man. All the women wear dresses. And all the guys, you're not spiritual unless you wear bib overhauls. That comes out of Genesis, I guess, someplace. It's the goofiest stuff you've ever been in your life. And they come to the point where this whole thing comes down to the fact he never wanted to submit himself to any accountability. So what do you do? You go start your own church, and then you can run it any way you want it, pretending you're doing it with the Bible when the Bible is 100 million light years around. And that's the way it works. I've watched it all my life. I've watched it happen. And it comes down to the fact that they don't want any accountability. And they don't want to be under the accountability. I want to tell you something. I, 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 I've said this before. I, you know, there's a lot of good organizations out there that do a lot of good. But I'm talking pure Bible. I mean, well, I'm going to put a, I'm going to shut off all the windows and I'm going to turn on the pure oxygen valve here. And what you're about to get is 100% pure Bible. I don't care how good it is. I don't care how good it looks. I don't care what the kid does, let me, or the guy does, or the girl does, or whoever does. Let me tell you this. If whatever that ministry is, is not out of and under the, and under the authority of a New Testament local church, it's unbiblical. It's just that simple. Because we have to have an accountability. And when you get out there, that's why they all get off goofy stuff. They wind up as Calvinists, or they wind up in the, you know, in the uh, lordship salvation heresy, or they wind up in, in some other goofy thing out there. Because there's nothing to hold them accountable. And it's a thing where that's the great aspect of the church. I am so absolutely pro-local church. I believe it's the center of everything in God's plan for the New Testament. 
And it's one of those things where I believe that you, he says right here, prepare to every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 says you get trained by it, you get called through it, and you get sent out from it. And if it ain't that way, you're on your own, pal. I don't care how you want to pretend God is in it. I've had so many people over my years say to me, come up and say, God is in this. God is in this. I've got it. God put it in my heart to do this. Six months later, a year later, two years later, and it's fallen flat on their face. God changed his mind, right? And this is why I'm not popular. I'll, I'll confront him with that. I'm saying, I'm confused. You told me here just a six months ago, eight months ago, that you were 100% sure this is what God wanted you to do. I had my doubts then. I really have my doubts now. And now you're telling me it failed? What? Are you going to tell me that that was just a short learning experience God had for you? That he's got bigger and better things? Are you kidding me? God never designed you and I to get that work going in our lives and then for you and me just to decide how we're going to do it. It doesn't work for me and it won't work for you. We have to have a structure in our lives. And everybody that you've ever worked with, dealt with, that had problems in their life, saved or unsaved, got into that mess for one reason. No structure. No right structure, anyhow. So he says, sanctified. Meet for the master's use. Prepared to every good work. Now, as a man gets saved, or a woman, as a man gets saved and sanctified and through the biblical process of a New Testament local church becomes the help meet to God in his labor, his work, then as he gets prepared uh, to do that perfect work, at the end, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 18, that he's going to receive a sure reward. 2 John chapter 1, verse 8 says not only is it a sure reward, but now it's a full reward. The fool and the transgressor, on the other hand, will never get God's wisdom and understanding. And all his life will go from one disaster to another, one heartache from another, one disappointment to another. And for a saved man who's a fool, he'll hit the wall at the judgment seat of Christ. For an unsaved man as a fool, he'll hit the wall at the great white throat judgment. And in both cases, they will receive the reward they deserve. In the Bible, this is called recompense. A required reward for your labor. Now, here's understanding. You want, it, you want understanding? Here it comes. Turn over to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, verses 16 through 23, you find that God demands the honor and glory out of everything that he created. He will get it one way or the other. I want you to understand that. He fixed the universe and he fixed our atmosphere and he fixed the earth and the moon and everything that he created that he would get the honor and glory out of it. And that's why the first thing you see in the morning when the sun comes up is it's blood red. And the last thing you see at night, it's blood red when it goes down. And that's because he wants the honor and glory that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. The Bible says the heaven declare the glory of God. He made them that way. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen and understand by the things that he made. Why? Because he wants honor and glory at everything. 
Everything in God's creation obeys the laws that God has put within them except man. And he will get it one way or the other. Through the vessels of honor or through the vessels of dishonor. Romans chapter 9 verse 20 through to 24 says this. Hath he not power over the clay of the shame lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel uh, another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath to make his power known? There's his glory. Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for, to destruction that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy that he made before uh, uh, under glory. You know what he's saying? He's saying, he's saying that God has vessels of honor and God has vessels of dishonor. And you get to choose which one you are. Notice down there he says the long suffering. The long suffering. God waited in the days of Noah 120 years before he brought judgment. He waited for the nation of Israel 400 years before he took the kingdom from them. And all that time, he was pleading with them through the prophets, get right, do what's right. Don't be a vessel of dishonor. But oh, no, no, no. We know more about it than God does. And this passage will show us how that God will, based on a man's free will choice, he'll be a wise man or he'll be a fool. And his, his, and prepared as a vessel of honor to get the glory of God out of it or a vessel of dishonor to get the glory out of it, his destruction. And it's based on the rejection of truth. And the key word here is that when a man saved or lost chooses to leave the Bible and do his own thing, at that point, he gets a name tag, fitted for destruction. The long suffering of God will put up with a lot. And he puts up with you and me like he did all through the Bible with men and women. But there comes an end to God's long suffering when God says, okay, pal, I want an honor and glory out of you. I've done everything. I've put everybody in your world to give you the chance. Now you want to do it your way? Okay. By your own choice, I'll get the honor and glory out of your destruction. I'll get the honor and glory out of your bad marriage. I'll get the honor and glory out of your rebellious kids. I'll get the honor and glory out of your suicide as a drug addict. I'll get your honor and glory out of you dying on the streets of Skid Row as an alcoholic. I'll get everybody to see that, know you were a Christian, and say, man, if that's how they act, I don't want to be part of that. God will get the honor and glory out of it. You either stand there as a symbol of God's honor and glory and God will get it out of you that way by preaching the word of God or you'll die in the gutter of the streets and everybody will see he claimed to be a Christian and God say, yeah, that's right. And that's what happens when you disobey me. To God be the glory. One way or the other. Now the great example in our chapter here is Pharaoh. And we know back in the books of Exodus, chapter 1 through 12, Pharaoh dealing with the children of Israel. And, you know, and I've looked at, and, and there's been others in the Bible too. I mean, uh, you know, have Pharaoh, you have Nebuchadnezzar, you have Shenacrib. Hey, and when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, God called, now here is a pagan king who hated God, died and split hell wide open, and God says, he's my servant. You know why? Because he was a servant of dishonor. And let me tell you something. When he tried to wipe out the nation of Israel and God wiped him out, who do you think got the honor and glory out of that? Does anybody even know who Nebuchadnezzar is? 
You ever see a t-shirt that says, I visited Babylon? You realize that all of those nations that went back there that hated God and hated God's people and tried to take a stand and wipe them out, they're all gone and the only nation that's left is the nation of Israel of the ancient nations. You know why? Because that's God's vessel of honor. That's why. And I, I, I thought about that. I mean, these guys had the chance of a lifetime. My, my favorite guy in the Bible is in the New Testament, Pilate. If Pilate could have done the right thing at the right time, there'd have been, he'd have went down in history as the most famous man in the history of the world. I mean, they bring Jesus out. He's questioning him. There's the whole rabble crowd of a 10,000 people wanting to crucify him. Pilate is the guy who's in charge. He has to say, if he could have just done the right thing, you know what he should have done? He should have walked out there with that howling mob and, and looked at Jesus and walked over there and he should, have, he should have taken off his royal robe and put it on the Lord Jesus Christ and walked over there and he says, there's your king, crucify me. Why, he went down in history the most famous man that ever lived. But he couldn't do it. But God got the honor and glory out of it. Pilate didn't look too hot after he had him crucified when he rose again the third day. It never works out to your favor to be a vessel of dishonor. You just better cave in and be the vessel of honor. Pharaoh wouldn't give in. He chose over and over and over again that he just had to be that vessel fitter. I don't know how many times Moses came to him. I don't know how many miracles Moses showed him. What more did he need? What more do you need? Shoot, some of you come here every Sunday. Some of you come here with a Bible study on Thursday night. Some of you have been saved for years and years. You wouldn't walk across the street to disciple somebody. What's wrong with you? Now, I've got to say, just throw this in here because I like to take a cheap shot at them whenever I can. The Calvinists now, they'll take this chapter here, and this is what the Calvin used to prove that poor Pharaoh didn't have a choice. That God, when he says here that God chose him uh, to be a vessel of dishonor, they say, see, there it is, there it is, there it is, there's predestination. And poor Pharaoh, he didn't have a choice. He, he got, God just chose him. And that just goes to how, and you, I'll tell you, my two signs, but you've got to be really stupid to be a Calvinist. If you're a Calvinist listening to me, you deserve what you get. You've got to be the dumbest person on the planet. I mean, Calvin, give me a break. Calvin read Romans chapter 9 where it said that God, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that's a proof text that God came, mean old God came down and hardened his heart because God didn't choose him. Really? Well, look, bugwit, go back and read Exodus again and you'll find seven or eight times before God ever touched him, the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart first. All God did was take the hardened heart that was already there that at least seven or eight times Pharaoh by his own mouth says, I have hardened my heart. Idiot. But God got out of Pharaoh his life, the honor and glory. 
he deserved by wiping them out in a series of miraculous uh, miracles. I mean, not only did, did they, were they all talking about the miracles that did God come down and did through Moses, but I'm telling you, I mean, boy, when they went out there and, and they're on their way and, you know, uh, uh, they're heading over there to the Red Sea and now they get to that point and the Red Sea is, you know, pretty big and pretty deep and now they're trapped and somebody says, hey, you're going to believe this. Here comes Pharaoh after us. And all the people, just like God people today, they got afraid. Moses just took that staff, the staff of judgment, stuck it in that water. And that old Red Sea just parted. And boy, they're looking at that thing and they start going across that thing, boy, and they got on the other side. And, and, uh, and then somebody looks back and says, man, we're, we're, this is great. Praise the Lord. Oh, yeah, man, they're high-fiving. Glory to God. You're just like you Baptists do. <laughs> then they look back and they see it's still wide open and it's, now Pharaoh's coming across. Now they've lost their favorite verse. <laughs> Moses is looking at him and saying, like any pastor, you five go down there and just sit in the riverbed. I'm going to drown. He just touches that thing and the water comes down and they all get drowned out. That's a great miraculous miracle. You think that wasn't in the headlines of the Egyptian Tribune the next day? <laughs> you think there weren't nations talking about that? You think there wasn't people on the other side, the camp followers that saw that happen and, and thought, went back and told everybody? And What do you say when Pharaoh's whole army doesn't come back? Oops. <laughs> and yet, your religious world wants to take that away from God. They say that it, it really wasn't the Red Sea really didn't split. They say in Joshua, the sun really didn't stand still. They say, well, you know, they found evidence now, just so you know, throw this away. They found evidence now that they didn't cross at the Red Sea. They crossed on the northern part, which is called the Sea of Reeds. And the Sea of Reeds is like a swamp where the water is only four or five inches deep. So there was no miraculous miracle that God split the Red Sea. They're always trying to rob God of his ordinary glory. It was the Sea of Reeds. Somebody just, some scribe just put another E in there or took, left the other E out and put Red Sea and everybody believes it. It's called the Sea of Reeds. There's no miracle involved. I tend to disagree. All of Pharaoh's army drowned it in four inches of water. That's a miracle. Any way you cut it, God got the honor and glory out of it. <laughs> And you know, that's how it'll work with you and me. Any way you try to get out of it, at the end of the day, God's going to get the honor and glory out of it. The whole world saw what God did. Why, back there in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse, 20, uh, uh, verse 21, when uh, uh, God has the sundial go back with Hezekiah, 10 degrees. Well, you'll find over there, there's people coming from other lands wanting to know what really happened. We saw 10 40 minutes go back in our time. Everybody knew what happened. God gets the honor and glory out of everything. He'll get the honor and glory out of you standing with a message of God in your hand wherever he wants you to go, or he'll get the honor and glory out of you in a car wreck at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning with a case of beer in the back. He'll get it. He'll get it. Listen, Proverbs 26.10, The great God that formed all things both rewardeth the fool and rewardeth the transgressor. 
And the Bible says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that all things were made by him and for him, and not, not anything was, uh, and, and he was before all things, and all things by him consist. It's just that simple. And God will get the honor and glory out of, a, out of a chosen vessel of gold or silver, or he'll get the honor and glory out of a wooden vessel of dishonor with wood and earth. But he'll get it. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but in your Bible, there are two places where it tells you that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One of them is for a saved man. The other one's for an unsaved man. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, 11, and 12, it says, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it is written, and as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So every one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now that's for a saved person. And a saved person, it says there in Romans chapter 14, it's a great chapter on dealing with people. And it's simply saying that as a child of God, if you don't bow your knee now in this life to be, be Lord of your life, you'll do it then. And it's not a question of whether you will or whether you won't. It's just when you will. But if you do it now, you get one set of rewards. If you get it then, <laughs> you get another set. Now, the other one's found over here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, 10, and 11. He says here, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus uh, uh, every knee should bow unto things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here he's taking, talking about the world. He's talking about unsaved people. Someday recognizing uh, him as Lord of all. And verse 11 says every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? Glory of God the Father. You're going to get honor and glory out of everything. I mean everything. We'll come back to God getting the honor and glory out of it. Man's indifference to God as a fool or a transgressor, saved or lost, will only result in God getting the honor and glory out of them as a vessel of dishonor fitted for destruction. God's, you know, God saw the defeat, as I said, of every nation that tried to stand up to him and his people. And as a saved person, through God's chastisement, you'll see that God's hand will be on every one of us, that you know that God took a hand in it. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you will stand and finally give him what he wanted all along, but you wanted to keep for yourself, and that is the honor and glory to be a vessel of honor. And you'll wind up being a vessel of dishonor based on the fruit of your hands, your labors. And as a lost person who rejects God and his word and follows the world system, God will show the world that uh, through your destruction that he's fitted you for, that he's all-powerful and you can't stand a chance. And at the great white throne judgment, when you stand before the assembled universe, you'll bow your knee and finally recognize that he was God all along and whatever you trusted in wasn't. He's going to get it one way or the other. And in both cases, there's a reward that you're going to get. Proverbs 26.10 says, For the great God that formeth all things, both rewardeth the fool and rewardeth the transgressor. The good work that God has started in you to get uh, the honor and glory out of all that we do and the good and the bad vessels of honor and the vessels of dishonor, he will get honor and glory out of all of them. And we get to choose which one we're going to be. In Christianity today, they have a heresy called lordship salvation, a lordship doctrine sometimes. And, of course, uh, it's total heresy. 
I don't have time to get into it today, but you find it all the time. All these goofy guys are getting into it, and it's something, you know, that uh, mostly it's an evangelical thing, but Baptist, stupid Baptists are getting in it too. But I want to tell you, in reality, there is a lordship doctrine in the Bible, and it is simply this. Romans chapter 14, verse 12, for a saved man, if you refuse to make him Lord of your life now, you will at the judgment seat of Christ. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, 11, if you're an unsaved man and want to stay unsaved and do it yourself at the great white throne judgment, you will give him the honor and glory. So there is a lordship doctrine in the Bible, just not as the goofy guys try to put it out. It's to say that someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, we'll hold up there.